So this morning's Bible reading comes on Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. And it says this. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you were entering to possess and drives out many nations ahead of you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jezebites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God has handed them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must completely destroy them. You must not make any covenant with them, show them no mercy. You may not intermarry with them. Your daughters you may not give to their sons, and their daughters you may not take for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from following me, and they will serve other gods. Then Yahweh's anger will burn against you, and it will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do to them. Their altars you must demolish, their pillars you must smash, their Asherah poles you must chop down, and their sculpted images you must burn in the fire. For you are a holy people, belonging to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth, on the face of the earth, to be his people as his treasured possession. It was not because your population was larger than all the peoples that he set his affection on you or chose you. For your population is the smallest among all the peoples. But it was because Yahweh loves you. And because he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that with a strong hand he brought you out and redeemed you from the slave house, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you should know that Yahweh your God is God. He is faithful God. El, you who keeps the commandment of unfailing love to the thousandth generation of those who demonstrate love for him and keep his commands. But he repays those who reject him directly by destroying them. He will not hesitate to repay directly those who reject him. So you must keep the command. This is the ordinances and the stipulations that I am commanding you today by putting them into practice. Now, if you pay attention to these stipulations and you keep them and put them into practice, Yahweh your God will keep with you the covenant of unfailing love that he promised an oath to your ancestors. Then he will demonstrate love for you and bless you and multiply your population. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, your special grain, fresh wine, and clear olive oil. The prized calves of your herds and lambs for your flocks, of your flocks in the land that he promised an oath to your forefathers to give you. You will be more blessed than all the peoples. There will be no sterile male or barren female among you or your livestock. Yahweh will ward off every disease from you, and he will not inflict on any of you the dreadful diseases of Egypt that you know about, but he will inflict them on all who reject you. You must devour all the peoples that Yahweh, your God, hands over to you. You may not look on them with pity, and you must not serve their gods, for that would be a trap for you. That is God's word. Please take a seat. I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Sorry, sorry, Dr. Dan, uh, Dr. Uh, Dan Block to us this morning. I first heard about him during his, some of his commentary series, the NIV application on, I think it was Deuteronomy? Was it Deuteronomy? <laughs> I think so, yes. And your Ezekiel commentary, two-part series, 1 to 24, chapters 1 to 24 to 25 to 48. 
and you're a professor emeritus of Wheaton College. I got it first wrong in the first. And I shouldn't know this, but your middle name is Isaac. Yes, my middle name is Isaac. And that's a perfect time for me to leave. That, that's the... In Russia, where we come from, that's the important part of your name, the middle name. They need to know which branch you are f- from. And in our family, there were 13 boys. Uh, the girls came. Uh, but every one of them has the middle name Isaac. That was my father's name, including number three, whose first name is Isaac. And my oldest uncle was Henry Henry Block. And so you understand what his father's name was. My father's name was Isaac Henry Block. It's very, very complicated. But it is good to be with you here at Willingdon Church. I've been so blessed by your hospitality the last couple of days as we've been with some of your people here, and it is a great joy and honor to greet you this morning in the name of the Lord. We are here by His invitation, and we are here for an audience with Him, which means He must speak. What's important is not what we say to Him. Who do we think we are? It's what He, the great King, would say to us. I am a bit angry with your pastor, Ray, just a bit, for giving me the most difficult assignment under the sun, the elephant in the room. And this is not just an elephant, it is a mastodon. What shall we do with the Lord's command to wipe out the Canaanites? Of all the questions people ask me about the Old Testament, I prefer First Testament. Try publishing a book. What you call something matters. And if you call it the Old Testament, yeah, well, that's passé. It's out of date. It's not mine anymore. But it is mine, and so I prefer to talk about the First Testament. It's all one story. It's the preamble to the great climax of God's grand plan of redemption. But of all the questions people ask me about the Old Testament, First Testament, this one surfaces more than any other. How could God demand that the Israelites wipe out the Canaanites, men, women, children? Is this not divinely sanctioned genocide, which we reject as totally reprehensible? It's a tough problem. And it's impossible for me to cover the topic adequately in one half-hour sermon on a Sunday morning. And you didn't come here uh, just for technical information. You came to get your batteries charged. So we need to take a slightly different approach. I thought it might be reasonable and helpful to look at a singular text, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 16, which is all about this subject. Actually, the whole chapter is, but we must be satisfied with the first 16 verses. This passage appears in the context of Moses' farewell pastoral addresses that he delivered to his congregation on the plains of Moab just before they crossed the Jordan River. As Jesus had done with his disciples in the upper room discourse, John 14 to 16, 
on the plains of Moab, Moses gathered his people one last time for a challenge to remain true to the Lord their God who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, who had entered into covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, who had cared for them in the desert, and was now about to deliver the land into this generation's hands. In chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, Moses had given the people that the Shema, which to this day Orthodox Jews recite first thing when they wake up in the morning and the last thing before their pillow hits the bed at night. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Oh, we're broken out in tongues here. Hear, O Israel, our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. Which means, you shall demonstrate love for Yahweh your God with all your inner being, with your whole body, and with all your resources. Nothing left over for any other God. That's chapter 6. Now we're in chapter 7, which is all about testing Israel's fidelity to the Shema commitments. Our text divides into three parts. The Lord's command to destroy the Canaanites, verses 1 to 5. The theological foundation for the command, 6 to 11. And the goal of the command, 12 to 16. So let's start with the command, verses 1 to 5. What does this first paragraph tell us about what we call the harem policy? We can summarize the answer with a series of bullet points. First, Moses categorized the targets of the policy as seven nations greater and stronger than the Israelites by far, and he identified them by name, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and Mennonites. Oh, not quite. <laughs> not quite. I'm sorry. I got carried away. And in chapter 4, Moses tells his people, you shall not add to the word that I have given you, nor subtract from it. So I, I beg forgiveness. But the important thing is to know that this was not to be general Israelite military policy. It was very strictly defined. In chapter 20, Moses will talk about when you go against other nations, you're to make overtures of peace first. But for the Canaanites, it's different. This is policy applies only to that. Second, the policy holds God, it, Yahweh, the God of Israel, as primarily responsible. He will drive out the nations before the Israelites and hand them over into their hands, and they are to do the, shall we say, dirty work. Third, the policy of Harem called the Israelites to annihilate the entire population of Israel. That's what the word means. Four, the particular targets of violence, though, were the idolatrous installations all over the land, high places, altars, images, 
symbols of the fertility gods of Baal and the Asherah poles, the female goddess, and all kinds of other cult images, carved images. These were these represented the gods of the Canaanites, and they represented their claim to this land, which is why in chapter 12, Moses will tell the Israelites, you shall blot out their names from this land. Because the Lord has arrived, and he is about to stamp it with his name. The place that I will choose for my name to be imprinted. Number four. Number five, sentimentality was not to interfere with a strict implementation of this policy. This may be the most troubling of, of all. He says, you must not make any covenant with them or, sh or show them any mercy. Really. The aim of Israel's flourishing in the land was Israel's flourishing in the land, but that would depend upon scrupulous implementation of this policy. You may not look on them with pity. You must not serve their gods, for that would be a trap for you. Verse 16, the ending of the text that was read. And then Moses ended the chapter with an emphatic warning. At the end of the chapter, uh, if the Israelites ever go off track and they behave like the Canaanites, God will treat them like Canaanites and apply the same policy to those who claim to be his own people as they are now to apply to the Canaanite population. Well, that's the policy. What shall we make of it? Let's go to verses 6 to 11. The foundations of the policy. This second paragraph opens with a, with a small but extremely important Hebrew word. You came here for a Hebrew lesson this morning. You can learn this word. It's key. And it is the key. You pronounce it as key. It means because. Verse 6 opens up with because. After these five things that you're supposed to do, because. And then he follows it up with eight clauses that provide motivation for this. This is Moses' grand, or, or the, the version of the God's divine plan, which I call the gospel according to Moses. Verses 1 to 5 don't sound much like gospel. That's bad news if you're a Canaanite. But now he underlays it with the good news, the gospel. What is this good news? Why this policy? Verse 6, because you are a holy people to the Lord God. Verse 6b, because the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured people. Verse 7a, because the Lord has set his affection on you. Verse 7b, because the Lord chose you out of all the peoples. Verse 8a, because the Lord demonstrated his love for you. Verse 8b, because the Lord kept his oath that he swore to your ancestors. 8c, because the Lord brought you out with a strong hand, and 8D, because the Lord redeemed you from the slavery of Egypt. Eight reasons why. And this is the gospel. 
don't forget the gospel. And we cannot deal with this policy of wiping out the gospel, wiping out the Canaanites without grasping the significance of the gospel. And what a gospel this is. It makes me say, wow! Obviously, Moses here has been inspired by the Lord's first address when they finally arrived at Egypt. What's the first thing God tells His people who had come to this place of divine appointment? Exodus 19, 4 to 6. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure. That word we heard. Chosen from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests my holy nation. That's behind this. Moses has been having his devotions in Exodus 19 as he uh, prepared for this sermon. Well, two expressions here are significant. First, God has chosen his people out of all the peoples of the earth and designated them as his treasured possession. Second, He has sanctified, ordained them to be his agent of grace to a world that stands under the curse. Let's talk about these two expressions. The first one. You are the Lord's treasured people. Here's a second lesson in Hebrew this morning. That's what you came for. I know that. This word this involves the word segola. It's a rare word in Hebrew. It's actually a very special word. It appears only eight times. Six times it's in this theological sense. It's a metaphor. You are the Lord's precious treasure or treasured people. But what does it really mean in everyday life? This we see in two texts. First, 1 Chronicles 29.3, David says, And now because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all of my private treasures, sigula, of gold and silver to help in the construction of the temple. This is in addition to the building materials I have already collected for his holy temple. Well, that's the first You understand what the word means in everyday life. It's not really every day for everybody. (laughs) It's every day for the king. It's the royal treasures. Here's the second one from Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8. The, The wise man, actually the fool, says, I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure, Segula, of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. But of course, by the end of the book, you discover it's all vanity, or as a professor of mine used to say, soap bubbles of soap bubbles, it's all soap bubbles. There's nothing to it. But this word, segula, this is what Israel is to God. His crown jewel. 
I will never forget some years ago now, it's about, I guess, 12 years ago, we took uh, our family, we were in London, and we visited the Tower of London, and among our grandchildren was our granddaughter, who was about five at the time, and she always was a sort of little princess. When we saw the crown jewels, you saw them when King Charles was crowned. When we saw those, I could, from the look on her face, I could see the wheels turning in her head. One day, wow, I will be wearing one of those. Imagine. This is what Israel was to God, his crown jewel, through whom he wanted to show off to the world the glory that is his. Now, as you know, a jewel is just a rock. It's just a stone. But what makes it a jewel? It's the treatment we give it so that it reflects light brilliantly. It doesn't give any light of its own. It depends upon the light out there. And that's Israel's role. They are the Lord's crown jewel. This image reminds me of a day in another millennium from my childhood. I mentioned that we were a dozen boys and, of course, a very poor family, and they're always torn knees. In those days, you wouldn't wear torn clothes in public, even if you were poor. <laughs> but in any case, my mother spent a lot of time patching pants, jeans, at the sewing machine. And on this treadle sewing machine, in rhythm with the hum of the machine, she would sing. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all his jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. He will gather, he will gather the gems for his kingdoms, all the pure ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own. Little children, little children who love their Redeemer are the jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. Your music arts people are having a meeting about, you need help? I'm here. You know, the, I used to think this was a children's song. I don't anymore. It's my song. The notion of God's people being His precious jewels chosen from all the peoples of the earth. It's a wonderful biblical metaphor. Diamonds and other gemstones, as I said, have no power on their own to emit light. Their function is to reflect and radiate light from some outside source. Which is why they need periodic cleaning, because all of a sudden, you know, that diamond we're wearing, it's a, it's a bit tough. Time to get it cleaned. 
That's sanctification. You shall be my holy people. And that's the point of the second expression that we have here. You are a holy people belonging to Yahweh. In Deuteronomy, Moses has very little to say about the holiness of God or the holiness of the temple or the holiness of the sacred vessels in the temple. But five times he talks about Israel as you are a holy people belonging to God. Where does he get that? Well, I think I know where he gets it. He doesn't tell us, but I think it comes from Remember the high priest? He has this special kind of uniform that he wears, complete with a turban, a big turban, and on the front of the turban is a medallion engraved. Kodesh la Yahweh, holy belonging to Yahweh. That's the priest. Well, five times Moses says to his people, you are a people Kodesh le Yahweh, holy to the Lord. And of course, we know that priests don't exist for the sake of priests. Priests have a function. Their function is to mediate between the resources of heaven and the desperate needs of earth. They are agents called by God to through whom he wants to lift the curse and replace the curse with a blessing. Moses would celebrate the Israelite status in chapter 26 where he says, The Lord has had you declare today to be, to be his, raw, his treasured people, there it is again, as he promised you, and you have promised to keep all his commands, and he has promised, all this full of promises, he has promised to install you high above all the nations that he has made for praise, for a name, and for honor. Whose praise, whose name, whose honor? And you have promised, committed yourselves to being a holy people belonging to Yahweh your God. He picks up this theme in chapter 28. And the Lord will bless you in the land that he is he, your God is giving you. And the Lord will establish you as his own holy people as he promised you on oath if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that Yahweh's name is read on you. You've never heard that translation before. Never have I. It's not anywhere. It, the translations typically have, and the Lord's name uh, you will, uh, will be cried out over you, something like that. But the, the custom behind this is the, the practice of owners of slaves branding the slaves with their names. I grew up on the farm in northern Saskatchewan, and there was a community pasture. And every spring before, uh, at the beginning of the, of the season, after winter was over, all the people would bring their young stock to the community pasture. And the first day, the smell of branding was all over the place. All these animals were branded. So that in the fall, when you come back to collect them, you know which are yours. It's a statement of ownership. 
This is about the second command. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God, for those who are branded with his name, everywhere they go, they advertise the name. I see some of you are wearing shirts and other clothing with names. Why do you wear that? For Christmas, I got a new, a new jacket with uh, the name Kiwit on here. Our son just moved from Vancouver to Denver, and uh, that was my Christmas present, Kiwit. And so people asked me, why do you wear a Kiwit shirt, a jacket? And I said, I got it free. <laughs> but Kiwit is very happy if I wear that shirt because it advertises. And that's what it means to bear the name of the Lord. You shall not bear. You shall not claim to be branded with the Lord's name and act as if you belong to Baal. That's the problem. Well, what then was the point of Israel's policy of wiping out the Canaanites? The mission of God required a holy people in a holy land on a holy mission for the holy God. That's it. That's why we have to start over, get rid of all the idolatrous things here and replace it with the Lord's name. Elsewhere we read of the Lord as, a, for I the Lord am a jealous God, especially in context of, of idolatry. But the word jealous is not really a very helpful translation. To us, jealousy is a synonym of envy. I'm envious of you because you have a better car than I have, or you're smarter than I am, or, or your you know how to run a computer, and I don't. I'm just a klutz. But that's not what this word means. The word means impassioned, fired up. The spark gets ignited. You have its everyday sense in Proverbs 6, where we read that a man who discovers that some other man has been messing with his wife, watch out, because his passion is ignited. At Sinai, the Lord had married Israel. That's his bride. For her to go after other gods will ignite his passion, and rightfully so. Remarkably, the, the theological use of this word always occurs in con, uh, context of idolatry. In the Decalogue, you call it the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself any sculptured image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth. You shall not prostrate before them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am an impassioned God. I get fired up. I get fired up when you're faithful. I can hardly wait to bless you. But if you're unfaithful, I get fired up and angry with the other gods and those who go after them. You see, after graciously rescuing an undeserving people from slavery to Pharaoh at Sinai, the Lord had entered into a marriage covenant with Israel. He graciously identified them as the object of his special affection. He had demonstrated that love by redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, and he had brought them to himself. Everything Israel was or has is to the credit of their Savior. 
Apart from that, they're nothing. If God hadn't done this for them, they would still be in Egypt making bricks without straw. This meant that for them now to go after other gods, the gods of the Canaanites, would mean to deny their identity as Yahweh's people, the redeemed people, and to declare their identity with the Canaanites who because of their evil had become the objects of God's fury. But my friends, the issues here are much bigger than just the Israelites or the Canaanites. What's at stake here is God's grand plan of redemption, which is at stake in His covenant with His people. And that means our salvation as well. Let's move quickly to the last part. The goal of God's command to destroy the Canaanites, verses 12 to 16. Now Moses describes in elaborate detail God's wish, his dream. Then he will demonstrate love for you and bless you and multiply your population. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, the special grain, fresh wine, clear olive oil, the prized calves of your herds and the, and the lambs of your flocks, and you'll be more blessed than all the peoples. There'll be no sterile male or barren female among you. This is an amazing text, not only because it offers... Well, the Lord hijacks fertility religion. Anything you attribute to other gods, I am the only basis of your security and well-being. Trust me, not them. But the interesting thing is how he does this. He doesn't use ordinary words for wine or grain or cattle. No, he uses words that are connected to the gods of grain. Dagan, grain. It's not the everyday word for grain. But you know the word Dagon. Remember the story in Samuel, the image of the Philistine god that they put up in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the morning it was smashed? That's Dagon, the god of grain. Or Tirash, that's the god of wine. Yitzchar, the god of olive oil. Sheger, the god of bovine, cattle, fertility. And Ashtaroth, you're the god of the sheep and the flock and flocks and the goats. Uh, flocks of sheep and goats. What, what the, Moses is saying here, don't look to the gods of this land. Trust me. And in the next chapter he will say, if when you come to the promised land and everything is flourishing, two dangers to avoid. Do not say, see what a good farmer am I. Look what my hands have accomplished. And you forget to give God the thanks. Or the other problem is, watch out that you don't give your thanks to the gods of this land and say, this is what they have done for me. That's the problem. The Lord is behind everything. So show no sympathy for the Canaanites and do not serve their gods. It will be a trap. This is underlying this policy of wiping out the Canaanites. The mission of God requires a holy people in a holy land on a holy mission for a holy God because your and my salvation are at stake. At stake. 
behind the firm boundaries that Moses drew between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world was this conviction of Israel's special status as the people of God. That blessed status is reflected in five expressions in verses 6 to 8. Israel will be a holy people belonging to the Lord, the object of his gracious election, his treasured people, the object of his affection, and the beneficiary of his covenant love. God granted them this as a free gift. Don't squander it. Don't forget where the gift came from. But by now many of you are wondering, what relevance has all this for us? Here in Vancouver, 21st century Christians in Western Canada. So what? What's the point for us? Well, here we may actually find great help in the New Testament. I do read the New Testament. It's a wonderful gospel there too. Paul undoubtedly had this text in mind when he opened his letter to the Ephesians by celebrating their privileged status in Christ, 1, 1 to 14. Like Israel of old, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus are chosen. They should be holy. In love, they're adopted as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace, the objects of his redemption, the, re the recipients of his inheritance, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Where does he get that from? Paul's been having his devotions in Moses' address. And it's an amazing thing. Hear the echoes. Or we could go to 1 Peter 2, 9. You know this text. But... But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful passions that war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Where do you get that from? That's Peter. He's been having his devotions in Moses too. Well, in our time, when believers in Jesus often feel like everything is against us. Have you noticed that? Our text tells us that we need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. We whom the Lord has redeemed, are the most privileged people on earth. Not because of any merit of our own, but the Lord in His grace has called us to be His precious jewels, radiating the light of His glory and grace to the world around us. But that means also that we take the second part of that two-part command. You are His holy people. So be holy, as the Lord your God is holy. 
as Israel's pastor, Moses had been pleading directly with his people not to blur the boundaries between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. But Deuteronomy 7 is also our Scripture. It comes from the book that was Jesus' favorite book of the First Testament. He quotes and alludes to it more often than any other. And we need to see this as our text. Like Israel, we are called to fight against the kingdom of darkness. Admittedly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not on genocidal campaigns, crusades, but we wrestle against the powers and principalities and the kingdom, uh, kings of the dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. But this demands the same vigilance and the same reliance upon the resources that God required of the Israelites. In this battle, alliances with the kingdom of darkness remain a particular problem, and they become a trap. Paul sounds remarkably like Moses when he talks about such alliances in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Some of you may already have been thinking about this passage as we've been talking. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Not the temple of dead idols. As God had said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. He applies this to Corinthian Christians, which was the covenant formula from the First Testament. I am your God, you are my people. Again, the last verse of Deuteronomy 7 offers a stern reminder to us not to limit the recognition of Yahweh as our God to creedal affirmations. I mean, we can be orthodox in our theology, but be quite off track in the mission. Spiritual commitment must be expressed in action that accords with the will of God who has so graciously revealed himself to his people. Jesus said, if you love me, tell me. Did he say that? No. If you love me, send roses. When we lived in Steinbeck, Manitoba, for 10 years, we had a Bible study in our house, and one of the guys was a jeweler. <laughs> and I'll never forget him saying, you know, the, the tougher marriages are, the better his business. You know, it's like the preacher has in the margin of his notes. Weak point, shout loud. Jesus didn't say that. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. In the Bible, this word love, whether it's Greek, agapao, or Hebrew, agave, it's always an action word. It's always love and serve, love and obey, love and whatever. Abraham Malamat 
uh, a Jewish scholar, says we should never translate that word from Hebrew into English with one English word, love. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It is, you must demonstrate love for the Lord your God with all your heart. It's always done. John 3, 16, for God demonstrated his love for the world in this, that he gave his only son. That's what it means. It's always an action word. John 3, 16 is not about how much God loves us. It's about how God loves us. By giving his son. And so we must demonstrate our love with faithful, joyful, grateful obedience to Him. There's a lot more we could say about a text like this, and I'm sure I haven't answered any of your questions, but I want us to remember that behind this policy for the Israelites was God's plan of redemption for the world. The Israelites and the Canaanites are a microcosm of the world which is under the curse. And that curse is about to hit. We're, apart from faith, apart from the grace of God, we are all Canaanites. And the Israelites were to be a microcosm of the redeemed. Ultimately, all people from every tribe and every nation will be gathered to sing the praises of the Redeemer. This is our calling. Apart from God's grace, we are nothing. When God called us to himself, it wasn't because we had anything to offer. There is no merit here. God's call to salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Unmerited. He didn't look upon us and say, you're really talented, I want you to be myself. He chose the Israelites, the scum of the earth. Slaves in Israel. Why? If I had been God, I'd have chosen the Egyptians at the high point of their history under Ramses II, and I would have baptized this whole place and made everything not for the glory of Ra or Ramses, but for the glory of Yahweh. But he didn't do that. He handpicked this band of slaves and says, I'm taking you to myself. You're mine. He didn't choose the greatest. He, choose, he chose the least. And he has a habit of doing this. My friends, we are looking forward to the day when all true Israelites, whether the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the spiritual sons, Gentiles, like most of us here, when we have been grafted into the grand historical plan of redemption, one day we will celebrate that grand salvation in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope, and that hope is offered to those whom God calls to be his treasured people his holy agents of mercy and grace. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Hallelujah! What grace! Hallelujah! What a privilege this morning to leave this building as his treasured possession, sparkling, reflecting the grace and the love of God to all we encounter out there on the streets.
What a privilege to be his treasured possession, his holy people commissioned with his mission of grace. May we celebrate that grace with holy living and joyful, grateful service to our great King, to the glory of God. Amen.